Hi listeners, this is the theory of the postdoc evolution, the podcast from the Postdoctoral Development Center at Queen's University Belfast. My name is Alice Dubois and in this episode and the next one, we will explore the lectureship recruitment process, gathering views from both members of recruitment panels and recently appointed lecturers. Slightly different format than usual, this discussion was recorded on the 17th of February 2020 in front of an audience of postdocs and it involved four panelists, Professor Aaron Moll, Dr. Karen McCutcheon, Dr. Donna Small and Dr. Paul McVeigh. This first part focuses on generalities on lectureships, the associated recruitment and the profile of the ideal candidate. I'm going to start by first introducing our panelists to you this morning. Uh, so first we've got Professor Aaron Moll. So Aaron is the Dean of Research in the Faculty of Medicine, Health and Life Sciences and is also a member of the University Research Strategy Group and as such he's been involved in the recruitment of multiple lecturers uh, over the years and he's also been involved in some of the strategic discussions that happen before creating lectureship posts. Next to Aaron is Dr. Karen McCutcheon. Karen is a senior lecturer in education and also the director of education in the School of Nursing and Midwifery. Her research focuses on assessing teaching and learning methods for nurses, which notably uh, enables Karen to assess the teaching experience of lectureship candidates. Next to Karen is Dr. Donna Small. Donna was appointed as a lecturer in cell signaling in the Patrick G. Johnson Center for Cancer Research a couple of years ago, uh, and previously she was a postdoc, then a medical research foundation fellow in the Wellcome Wilson Institute for Experimental Medicine. And last but not least is Paul McVeigh. Paul was still recently a postdoc in the School of Biological Sciences, and he was also the co-chair of our postdoc society. He started a lectureship in parasitology at the start of the academic year, so a few months ago, about four months, isn't it? Yes. So thank you to the four of us for joining us today. I'm sure that every input that you will have will be very useful to the postdocs in the room today and also for our listeners. So we're going to first start by looking at the lectureship role itself and the different types of roles that are kind of uh, linked to lectureships. We'll look at the generalities of the lectureship recruitment process and the profile of the ideal candidate. So first, to give it a, a start, maybe I want to ask uh, Donna and Paul, now that you've been a lecturer for either a couple of years or four months, what aspects of the jobs didn't you anticipate or what has been very different in reality than what you had pictured in your head? The volume of administration. <laughs> <laughs> you have a lot more um, admin work um, as a lecturer, I find, compared to being a research fellow or a, a postdoc. So I guess I wasn't prepared for the sheer amount of it, but I'm getting used to it. Yeah, I think honestly, I think it's pretty much as I anticipated. Um, you know, you, you kind of have a feel for. Or I certainly had a feel because I'd kind of aimed myself at lectureship for so long, so I had a good feel for. Um, you know, it, it's about you know supervising students and doing research and preparing for teaching and sitting on committees. You know, so it is pretty much as I anticipated. Maybe the one thing is that um, it's actually still pretty difficult to to fit research in. You know, as a probationary lecture we're meant to have protected time for research but there's still so much 
um, time around preparing for teaching and everything else, that it's, it is still difficult to fit that in. So that's maybe the thing I didn't expect. Yes, and would you say maybe is that the thing that's been the most challenging for you when trans- transitioning from a postdoc position to a lectureship position? Yeah, I think so. Um, because, you know, you're used, as a postdoc, you're used to doing the research yourself. And you have to completely get out of that mode of thinking. Um, you know, it's 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 I anticipated getting easier because I'm starting to have students starting in the lab, so should I'm starting to have hands that can do some of the work. Um, but yeah, that probably is the the most challenging thing, I think. And for you, Dana, was it the administration load then the most challenging? Yeah, it was. But also, as Paul was saying, you know, hands in the lab doing the work. Um, you know, we were so used as the postdocs or the research fellows doing the work ourselves that you're now becoming somewhat impatient, <laughs> for, you know, for the data, you know, so it's kind of, oh, I could get into the lab and do it myself, but then you're like, I have to prepare this lecture for next week, or oh, I've got these, you know, essays to mark, and then you get an email reminding you you need to set exam questions, and then you get another couple of emails to tell you you have to prepare, you know, other things, and it's just like, okay, I never see the lab, you know, yeah. so you are then kind of just relying on the people that's in the lab. Yeah, and then you have a lot of people like me who ask you, hey, would you want to join a panel on a Monday morning? <laughs> no, but it's important. You know, it's important too. Okay. Um, and so we know a lot of you would be, and a lot of our listeners would be very well aware of the teaching and research lectureships, which are kind of the most common, but there's also a lot of lectureships now in different uh, institutions that are lectureships in education. Uh, in education. So, Karen, this is the type of lectureship that you have. Could you maybe tell us a little bit what the difference is between a teaching and a research lectureship and a lectureship in education? I think the first thing to say is that every school and every faculty will have a different um, academic profile, if you like, for lecture education and lecture with research. Uh, in the School of Nursing, we have found that our lecturers have a professional, their lectures education tend to have a professional background or a qualification. So, for example, I was a senior manager in clinical practice, so I didn't have a doctorate when I joined Queen's University, but, um, you know, once I got that lecture in post, I was able to undertake a doctorate um, level uh, qualification. So, lectures education, um, they have different roles. Um, you would spend probably two-thirds of your job is teaching and the administration that we, we've just heard. That is what a lecture education is all about, really, and a third of their work would be around um, scholarly activity, activity that's, that looks at developing pedagogy and developing um, the research around education and how we deliver it and how best to deliver it. Whereas um, a lecture with a research, a TNR lecture, as we would call them, they um, would would probably, or they're supposed to spend about a third of their time teaching an admin. It may be slightly different. Um, again, it's that balance as well, but there's a, there's a difference in, in the amount of teaching that you would actually deliver. In yes. this um, I guess, as you just said, a lecture in education still does research, but research in the pedagogy and in the methodology. It's that's, that's right. And another type of positions that have been uh, flourishing a bit everywhere around the past few years are those institutional vice-chancellor fellowships. Um, so, Aaron, you've been involved with the, the vice-chancellor fellowship scheme here at Queen's, and the, which is now called the Illuminate Fellowships. Mm-hmm. Um, so can you tell us a little bit what the difference will be between those types of fellowships and, and lectureships? 
I can do, Elise. So the fellowships are very much predicated solely on research excellence, whereas a lectureship is kind of a more rounded profile. So the, the Illuminate would bring people in to have all of their time focused on research, maybe a little bit of time in education, but very restricted. They would be inducted into a fellowship academy within which they would have opportunities for other training, importantly as a cohort, a cohort with other fellows. So a lectureship who's brought, a lecturer who's brought in would be very much their own individual, they'd be themselves, you know, they wouldn't have a cohort. There may be other people appointed around the same time, but it's a much more individual appointment, whereas this is a cohort who will work together and hopefully feed off each other. Uh, there will be a provision for funding for those fellowships appointees to get the research up and running. So it's very much a, a transition for those who've shown exceptionality in research quality uh, that the Illuminate program serves. Okay. So now that we looked a bit about the role, let's talk about the lectureship recruitment process by itself. So first, Aaron, I think this question will be for you. What actually drives the creation of a new lectureship post and who actually decides to create a lectureship? <laughs> well, at the core, we have to remember that a lectureship investment is one million or more. So straight away, there's a financial imperative, and, and you know we would be kidding ourselves if we didn't think that is behind the addition of a new member of staff. So there has to be a financial driver. Now that could be, for example, in research sphere, a new research area that the university is going to invest in, so therefore they want to make appointments. I think the last major round of appointments that we saw was around the development of the Global Research Institutes, where they grew, so they were given resource to appoint a significant number of staff. But by and large, the normal yearly addition is driven by student numbers. So if there's falling student numbers in a discipline, you would be unlikely to see new posts appointed. Uh, but if you have an increase or a sudden need to train more, as we've seen in the nursing school recently, there would be a driver for new investment and new posts. And that's because there's fees coming in to, to support that post and make it sustainable, because these have to be sustainable. So who actually decides then? Well, I think a lot of people are involved in that decision. Right now, how it works in this institution is that schools would, would see the, the need and they would discuss that and bring a case to faculty and faculty would look at faculty needs across all of the schools in that faculty and agree or disagree on that, on that appointment. Um, so it's usually by a, you know, an agreement. Now, the finances would have to be there to support that and that would obviously be driven both by faculty and then sign off at the Central University. Okay. So if we think of postdocs who are thinking of applying for lectureships uh, in the future, is there a way to actually anticipate when those new posts are going to be created and in which area, or should they just keep an eye uh, on the university websites and see what's coming up? Well, well, I think obviously you need to keep an eye on the adverts. Having knowledge about what is coming down the line is not that easy. I mean, I think the narrative around, for example, the last round, around GRI development, I think people who were privy to that within the institution might have then put two and two together and realised, well, if they're going to build global research institutes, they need to appoint uh, research active staff into those. So that may have triggered, you know, an idea that, okay, there will be appointments. But I think generally it's, it's, it's what's the advert. Yes. And... Don Paul, do you remember how you came across the 
the advert for your current post then? Yes, so at the time, which would have been January, February 2018, I was actually looking to apply for fellowships, um, external fellowships uh, the, well, to the Wellcome Trust and to the MRC. So I was actually priming my CV more towards fellowship applications and I had actually ran into somebody from, well, at the time it was CCRCB who had said, have you seen uh, the lectureship advertisements? And I was like, no, I haven't. Oh, you should really have a look at those. And I was like, no, because I'm, I'm really interested in going for fellowships. So it was about a week later, I actually then did look at the, the job adverts and kind of went, yeah, I don't think I'm going to going to fit the criteria. I don't think my research will actually uh, be part of any of those um, schemes. So then another week went by and then I went back and had a real thorough read and then I went, actually, you know, maybe I could angle the CV a wee bit more towards the fellowship or to the lectureship. And then by the, the end of the third week, I had started to work on it for submission. So, yeah. Okay, so you actually... We're lucky that someone... Yeah, yeah because I was yeah. so focused on very much fellowships, um, it was actually a conversation that somebody had pointed out to me, so okay. I wasn't actively looking for them. Yeah. And you, Paul, do you remember how you came across the advert? <clears throat> yeah, well, I mean, I had been um, focusing on lectureship for a long time, um, so I had been actively building my CV in that direction. Um, I think probably from about this time last year, there was a bit of chat around the school that there was there was a parasitology lectureship coming up to support one of the master's programs, um, and you know, so I kind of started thought from that stage, well, I'll go for that, um, and yeah, then it was advertised for last summer, and yeah. The rest is history. So. Okay, so keep your eyes open. <clears throat> yeah, it is. Yeah, very so much. That, that's about. the key. Yes, of course. I would just add, if you're not in, you can't win. So you know, if yeah, you do definitely. see a post out there that is of some appeal to you. The way to learn how to do this is to apply. Yeah. I was told after my first lectureship interview by my mentor, Aaron, that was a train wreck. And it was a, it might have been a punch in the nose, but by goodness, I learned a lot just from that comment. And I, the next time, I nailed it, you know. And, but it took severe criticism to do that. And I think you learn from going through the process. Um, so I'd encourage everyone to do that. Aaron and Karen, you've both been part of uh, recruitment panels, so can you tell us a little bit how panel members are selected to be on lectureship recruitment panels? Uh, well, I'm not a uh, people and culture <laughs> background, so uh, the, obviously the head of school w uh, in the School of Nursing would be in charge of selecting the panel, um, putting forward nominations for that. Um, we have to make sure that there's a balance across, so there would tend to always be a man for example, on the panel, um, we would bring in, because it's nursing and a professional course, we would bring someone from practice. So someone from the clinical practice area would come in, normally a senior manager or above. Um, yeah. Typically, um, what I'm used to is that the head of school would delegate most appointments, unless it's a very senior appointment position in the school, to maybe a director of research or director of education, who would then probably select the panel with the head of school sign off, of course, um, and that would be, be sure to be diverse, but to include the key elements of the academics. So there's always someone with a research focus, and there's always someone with an education focus on that panel. Okay. And um, 
then a question that had been submitted by uh, some of our audience members was what actually happens to the application, so the CVs and cover letters that are submitted by uh, the candidates, which process do panels actually go through to first shortlist the candidates for interview and then add interview to select who's going to be the person appointed? Very simple. Uh, all applications are checked that they meet all of the essential criteria. So do they done independently to start with. So you yes. do that independent and then the, the members of the panel meet um, and look at any differences. Yes, in compare yeah. notes. And so you said all essential criteria are checked Absolutely. or do you select a few? No, all so essential no criteria all are essential or they wouldn't be designated essential. So if you don't have some of the essential criteria, you're ineligible for that post. Okay. And if you haven't, it might well be that you have got the essential criteria and you just haven't put it down. But if we can't see it, then we, we can't yeah. assume Yes, anything. so in the second part, we'll be talking a little bit about the application documents themselves. But I guess what you're saying here is to really tailor your CV and cover letter to the job description because that's really what... Yes, draw out any of the essential criteria that you have, which you should have them all, and also any of the desirables. Yes. Okay, so now if you look at the profile of the ideal candidate, knowing that the ideal candidate is, as the word said, an ideal and doesn't really exist, um, if we talk to you, like Aaron and Karen, uh, when you see a CV, what's like the most important thing you look at first, like all your top three things that you look at. Do you want to do from the education side? I mean, for, for me, the first thing, we've just mentioned it really, is that essential criteria. So that needs to be clear and it needs to be, you know, as soon as I start to read this, I need to be able to see that it's in there because if you, without that, you're not going anywhere. You know, you're not getting to the next stage. So make it clear. Don't lose it. Don't lose that essential criteria in a whole big paragraph of, of writing. You know, make it sure that it's very clear um, because if you can imagine, you may have... Well, we've had up to 35, 40 people applying for one position. And so that's a lot of time and, and effort spent in shortlisting. So if it's not clear and it's not there at the front and you haven't caught my attention, that's, that's the first downfall. So that essential criteria, can't stress it enough. Um, I don't like big lists of text. I prefer um, short, snappy. Um, bullet points are fine. Um, make sure that your achievements are there. So... Some people forget about their achievements and what makes you different. Try and make your differences come through. That's very important, um, that you're not lost within the 35 other applicants who have applied. Uh, those would be my few. Yes, any idea that a three-page or four-page cover letter, if you're one of 100 applicants, is appealing to the panel is obviously a misnomer. <laughs> so being succinct and to the point is obviously welcome and, and probably gives the reviewer some maybe less bias against that candidate, not that there is any bias in it, but you know, it would make them positively disposed if it was very succinct and to the point. Um, most of the posts, not all, but most of the posts I've been involved with have been research and education. Um, and generally, most CVs that we would get would be focused on the research narrative with some education in there. Um, with that in mind, I think the key denominator is the quality of the outputs. That's the first thing that is looked at, no doubt. And there's, it's easily metricized around, you know, the impact factor citations, where the author, where the applicant is on the author list, their role in those papers. So that's key. Uh, next, probably 
importance would be if you held independent funding and a fellowship that is a clear driver to show that you are capable of independent research and, and leading your own research, which is seen as very important. I would say for most lectureship posts that I've been involved with, that has not been the case. Uh, most of the appointees have not held fellowships because we don't get enough holding fellowships applying, which means if you did hold one, you're at an advantage. So just highlighting that. Um, after that, good communication skills, whether that's evidence through the teaching you've done and obviously also evidenced at interview. You know, a researcher who presents their research very eloquently, clearly and concisely will make a good teacher. Yes. So... If we look at uh, the fit of candidates within the department they would be employed in, how do you actually assess that, assess that they're going to maybe complement the local research and, uh, and teaching and be able to contribute? At, at the interview stage, um, I look for the sort of the four C's, so someone who's um, able to communicate, someone who is uh, creative, they're, they're creative in how, they have, um, how they, they're thinking, um, commitment and flexibility, you know, that they can, they can show that, and also around confidence and enthusiasm. So some of the, the interviews that I've sat on that have not gone further may well have had the, the best candidate there, but the interview itself has been very flat, has um, focused mainly on research and has not focused on education or teaching. Um, and I need to know that that person has some experience and that they can design, plan, implement, assess and evaluate um, teaching. Because that's for a big school with a lot of teaching commitments there. That is what's important. Enthusiasm, motivation, mm -hmm. vision. Yes, and like in terms of fit, uh, between the, the research they're, they're proposing, how, well, how much if, does it have to fit within the department? Fit is often within the criteria, and if they didn't fit, they it's likely that they would not have been shortlisted uh, for interview. So I think that's almost predetermined with respect, and certainly a research post to the research, that if they didn't fit, they wouldn't be at the interview. Um, beyond that, obviously the post is created around the need of that school or that institute. So all of the things listed desirables are what that institute needs that person to deliver. Um, so in that context, I think that's almost predetermined that the person, if they shine at interview, could, could undertake the role. Okay. But even like before applying, how can someone know that they will uh, be a good, a good fit for the department? Well, I don't think it's possible to know all department needs. Schools are incredibly complex. You know, we're talking about the generation of new knowledge, the dissemination of new knowledge, training and education of people, engagement with, you know, from schools to the public to government agencies. So there's a lot of moving parts and, of course, the translation towards impact. You, you try to define that, it, it, it's very, very difficult. So yeah. people are usually excellent in some one or combination of those domains. But I think the best applicants know something about all of them, but really excel in one or two of them, typically. Okay. Uh, and you mentioned a little bit independent fellowships, for example, but what level of research independence do you actually look for in candidates at that stage? Well, as I said, if, if they have a fellowship, uh, a fully independent fellowship, that is clear evidence 
um, that they can, on, they can have clear research ideas and can undertake an independent line of research. That is the most compelling narrative that you can provide around that. I would say beyond that, and maybe I shouldn't say this, but mostly it's a punt. You know, you, you, you find that the narrative is compelling, the CV is compelling. Ultimately, that does not always mean that people going into those posts turn out to be good academic colleagues, unfortunately, but, but hope most do. Um, so there is a, a, an element of, yeah, they've, they've hit the nail on the head on all of our expectations. It's the person who came out best at interview. We will make that appointment. We never really know until they're in post for five or ten years. Okay. <laughs> And um, also, how important is it to have a track record of attracting funding? And we talked about fellowship a few times before, but how can candidates sometimes highlight the contribution that they would have had to some grant applications that they wrote with their PIs because they can't be uh, listed as principal yes. investigator yes. or co-investigator? I always find this narrative rather interesting because I often hear things, you know, have been in the past around PFACT, around recognition in the terms of the allocation, the ARGAS internally, how much of my time is, have I been credited with this grant. But nobody external knows what any of that means, so it's actually of no use. What is of use is what your narrative says. So you could say, co-wrote this application. Now, I've seen claims like that that have been genuine, where postdocs have done a heck of a lot of work in it, and others that maybe haven't been. And I think it's important to do that honestly, say, you know, I wrote a section, or I conceived the idea. If you've done that, that's very important. If I conceived the aims, that, that's fantastic. You, you tell the reader you've done that. But just put some narrative beneath the grant. And hopefully your references would back that up, if there was any query or not. Yes. So you, just, you, just need to, you just need to communicate the information. Yeah, I think that's some feedback that I give to a lot of the applicants who come to me uh, who say, well, I wasn't the PI on that grant, so I can't put it on my CV. So it's not the case. No. And the Dean of Research has said it's not just me. So you guys yeah, you, know, explain the contribution that you actually had to yes. the process. Yes, list the applicants. Uh, you know, And if you aren't listed as an applicant, list that I was involved in the the generation of data, which is very, very typical, the writing of methods, which is very typical for postdocs. Uh, if it's conceiving the narrative around the context in which the grant application is made, I think it's very important to state that. Okay, so now let's talk about teaching experience. And of course, for a lectureship position, teaching experience is important. But how much uh, teaching and what range of teaching would you expect from candidates first for research and teaching lectureships? I think it's fair to say we expect all of our applicants to have some teaching experience. Almost all, I'll not say all, but almost all posts require some teaching, whether that be a few lectures or you know, some practicals. Uh, beyond that, it really depends on what the post is, whether it's an education post, on how senior that appointment is. If you're coming in as a senior lecturer, we would expect to see some significant amount of teaching and curriculum development potentially, uh, developing new courses um, around what programs uh, teach and how they teach, uh, an understanding of what education is as well as obviously the research profile. For lectures education, you would be hoping for um, a stronger level of teaching experience. Um, you would be looking at positive teaching evaluations as well. You'd want to see evidence that the teaching standard was high. 
Um, so that would be important to have that included. And again, as you go up, senior lecturer, education, reader, and, and um, professor education, the, the stakes get higher, and there's expectation of it to be um, more pedagogical research applied, uh, more understanding of small group teaching, large group teaching, all the different types of online uh, blended learning approaches that are being delivered. So there is a greater expectation for that post. Yes, and I guess kind of the message is this one. It's more about the diversity of the teaching experience than the quantity of having done like 100 hours of the exact same lecture is not as important as having done some lectures, some tutorials, some demonstrations, some group work, etc. Correct. Correct. Uh, large group, small group, and different forms of teaching is, is uh, the optimal way to populate your CV around education. I will say this, point this out. If at a research and education post, you're giving a presentation in your interview, and you're asked to speak for five minutes, or for 10 minutes, or for 15 minutes, and you're asked to use audio-visual aids um, and present that information, and you can't do some of those things and can't keep the time, that rings alarm bells for the panels quite often. How can this person actually be a serious lecturer if they can't deliver within a stated time frame? Yeah. So I just say that the number that do that poorly is actually shocking. Okay, so lesson learned for our listeners and our uh, attendees today. So now if we look at part of those research achievements that we talked about, the teaching experience, what else do you like to see in a candidate at the CV and, uh, and cover letter stage? Well, obviously the, an academic role is very diverse, so some level of administrative activities, whether that's around managing a piece of equipment, managing a laboratory, managing some funds for a PhD or something, those type of activities. Engagement outreach is obviously high value. We like people to have been involved in recruitment, talking to schools, talking to the general public. All those things provided added value around that narrative. And the other thing, of course, is the translation of research, where you are in that pipeline. We have very different academics. We have some, you know, looking at understanding a mechanism in a cell and we have people delivering um, cures to people on the ground and beyond that, obviously. So that, those are very different activities and whichever one you're going into, we need you to provide the clear narrative in understanding that pipeline. So people might come in and they're focused at one part of that pipeline and they don't know anything about the other area. So I think the context is is clear evidence for many panel members of the intelligence and roundedness of that individual. Do you understand where you fit in the bigger picture? Yes, yeah, so we've got one question for the, from the audience here about how can some uh, activities that may be looked at slightly extra academic or that have been done uh, a while ago, for example, being involved in, um, in high school uh, education, uh, or, well, we've been given the example of an Aikido uh, teaching, which may not be uh, fully covered, but um, those type of activities, do you put them in your CV? I would say yes. I think while some of them do not appear directly relevant to the post, they all provide a narrative around other skill sets that actually quite often academic posts demand, which is usually juggling a lot of different things, showing leadership, you know, motivating people, uh, being a good communicator, all these things, you know, if they're, if you can provide support from other activities, yes, do so. Don't put them up front, but put them at the end of your CV, but make sure they're there. And I would, I would 
agreed with that. Um, don't try and avoid the platitudes of I'm a good communicator, I'm a good team worker, uh, and, and give examples of where, where you have done that, even if it is a bit left field, do you think that it is something that perhaps doesn't directly relate? Because it's what makes you different. And remember, you've got 40, 30, 40 applications coming in. So something that makes you different for a good reason um, is important. Another question from the audience is what would actually be uh, the involvement of the human resources or in Queen's, the people and culture department in shortlisting the application before they actually reach the panel? Uh, the only role there is to ensure any that are clearly not eligible don't make it to the academic. For example, uh, academics tend to be you know, in a little bit selfish with their time because they're so busy. So when they get 100 applications and 50 of them didn't have a PhD and a PhD was essential, they ask HR or PC, why did you not remove those? So there has been an increase in that activity. So in other words, it's taking out those that are clearly ineligible, usually around qualifications, nothing else. So they're not making decisions on the quality of that application, just the eligibility. Yes. Another useful thing that HR do is, um, is in trying to explain the relevance of um, qualifications from foreign countries to how they relate to, say, A-levels or GCSEs or whatever in, in this country. Um, and that could be really useful because quite often we you get a CV and it has a you know a statement on qualification that you just don't don't understand and there will be a translation alongside that from HR. It's it's very helpful for um, for the panel. I hope this first part of the discussion has been insightful for you and that you are now craving for more. In the next part, in episode 5, we will hear into more detail from Paul and Donas and their personal profiles and experience and look at more tips on getting ready to apply. Thanks for listening and please leave us some feedback on iTunes or via the podcast page go.qub.ac.uk slash podcast PDC. Bye!